Welcome to another episode of The Corner Booth, the official podcast of RestaurantOwner.com and Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. Today, the restaurant industry is changing faster than ever. Learn from successful independent restaurant operators and other industry leaders as they share best practices that will help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business. Here are your hosts, Barry Schuster and Chris Tripoli. So here we go, another episode of The Corner Booth. I'm Chris Tripoli. And I'm Barry Schuster, editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. And you know, Barry, I think today's episode is one that might actually make us hungry. We're going to be talking <laughs> culinary development. We're going to be talking about menu trends. And our listeners might get hungry because our guest today is Chef Omar Perinet. He's the principal of Culinary Matters, an international Houston-based restaurant consulting group. So Omar, welcome. Hi, Chris, Barry. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great to see you. And and yes, people will be hungry. I'm hungry because I've had the pleasure of of having Omar prepare meals for us. And I can tell you they were extraordinary. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I, I certainly like cooking. <laughs> so, Chris, you, you and Omar go back a ways and, and there's a really interesting journey there. And I'd like you guys to talk about it because... I always found it very inspiring. Well, that might be a good place to start. You do have a very unique start in hospitality. So let let the listeners in on that. Okay, so I started cooking, you know, when I was 11 years old. I, what I mean by cooking is professionally. So I used to just cook at home like a little crazy kid since I was maybe eight or nine years old because, you know, both my parents worked for uh, tech companies, which means they were always gone. <laughs> so I had to do a lot of the, you know, cooking myself, a lot of post-its around the house to like explain, you know, my sister and I how to reheat food and how to kind of like figure it out in our own. And so, you know, next thing you know, I tell my parents, you know, I don't like reheated pasta. So then the post-its were explaining how to actually boil the pasta and whatnot. And, and things like that, very, you know, minimal cooking, but I, I, did, I did cook at home since I was, you know, very, very young. And then at age 11, this very famous chef opens a restaurant, fine dining restaurant. We're talking big plates, tweezers, you know, flowers, microgreens, you name it. And I tell my parents, I, I need to go there, need to meet this chef. And they took me there. And this was like a real statement of a restaurant. And so I'm 11 years old, sitting in this dining room, and the owner's walking by touching tables and he sees an upset 11 year old eating, you know, this mini food in this big plate. And he's like, hey, what's going on? Is everything okay? I said, well, no, it's not okay. Cause I asked to meet the chef and they said the chef isn't here. So it's at 11 years old when I learned, well, the chefs don't cook all your meals. <laughs> so then yeah, I, was, I was very uh, upset. I was like, I, I don't understand that. What do you mean the chef is not here? So who's cooking my food? So he explained and he said, well, you want to take a tour for the restaurant? I said, sure. And then during that little tour, we broke the ice. He handed me his business card, said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, I want to be a cook. And he said, well, you can always come and cook with us. And I took his business card, called him insistently for, you know, the following five days. And then he said, sure, you can come on Friday. And ever since that Friday, it's been, you know, 15, 16 years. Uh, I never stopped cooking. So that was the... They won. So where were Omar, you? Omar, this was were in Venezuela, right? At that age. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, I'm sorry. That was, yes, that's in Caracas, Venezuela. Okay. Thank you, right? Labor laws probably would have not allowed that here. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's how it all got started. And, you know, since age 11, like I said, I, I've been working in restaurants pretty much every day from fine dining to then, you know, a little bit of everything, ethnic, hyper-focused, Italian, Japanese. When I started picking the places that I like best to work at, I started going towards seafood. And I think that's what got it all started. And then at age 16, I opened my first restaurant. And it was one of those seafood, Asian fusion type restaurants in Caracas also. And even prior to that, at age 14, I started hosting my cooking show. And I think that's where a lot of people knew who I was in, in South America. So I had this really cool cooking show in, in like the Food Network in South America called El Gourmet, where I was teaching people how to make simple recipes, you know, your, your pizza, your, you know, bread, your pasta, your sandwiches, salads, simple stuff, at least simple to me, but that really, you know, helped kickstart my career. And how did you get over here? You, you, you were in Venezuela, you moved to the United States, and, and then when you got here, wow, you had some opportunities to work with some pretty famous people, including George Bush, as I recall. So what, what was the journey that, that brought you into the United States to broaden your culinary career in this part of the world? So it really started in, after doing a little bit of traveling across the United States, I went to Mexico, to Cancun in Mexico, where I taught at Le Cordon Bleu, the French cooking school. And then I moved to Mexico City, where I started working with, for this uh, restaurant group. And they hired me with the intention of kind of starting working in the restaurants in Mexico City, two, two restaurants in Mexico City, two in Acapulco as a corporate chef, but then really with the intention of transferring me to the States to open this new concept that they were dreaming about for so long called Pesca. So that's where I met father of mine, Chris Tripoli. <laughs> how, how old were you at this point when you were in Mexico City running four seafood restaurants before they 19. sent you? Oh, okay. <laughs> That was a a really cool meeting because I had been cooking for Chris, the famous, you know, restaurant consultant from Texas, from the United States is coming down to, you know, taste your food. So I was freaking out. And, you know, after putting all these, you know, menu items, which was I was working on, you know, the menu for Pesca. He he looks around and says, well, when do I get to meet this young chef? (laughs) And I had been standing next to him. For, for the past 15 minutes. I'm like, hey, I'm here. I think he was a little impressed. I think a lot of people were startled at the amount of knowledge and cooking ability at such a young age. So getting back to Barry's point now, let's explain to the listeners how the concept got you into America. Okay, you opened it. And then from there, I guess it opened the door to what other opportunities? Yes. Yeah, so I. I worked at Pesca for three years. Of course, you know, I helped develop the concept and opened it. And it was an incredible experience. Like, I, I cannot say that enough. It was a blessing of, of, of everything. Experience. I, I was exposed to so much amazing seafood and, and incredible people. And more importantly, I made the determination of I want to stay in this country. You know, I want to call this place home. And when that experience ended, for better or for worse, right, I was terminated from that job. And I was like, all right, what do I do? And I had some legal implications or non-competes that wouldn't allow me to be a chef at another restaurant. 
at least not in you know Houston. So I didn't want to go to another city. Didn't want to go back home. So what do I do that is you know within the culinary space? And so I reached out to Chris again and said, "Hey, remember me? I am looking for a job, and I would love it if you give me an opportunity to consult with you. I've never really consulted before, but I have the feeling that between you know my creativity and also I ha- I'm." you know, pretty tech savvy because of what I told you, my parents' background. I understand numbers. How can I, you know, how can I be a part of this? How can I learn and, and, and be a part of what you're doing, which was a la carte food service consulting group. And that was early 2017. And I don't mind telling you guys, being fired from that job is the best thing that's ever happened to me in my life. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's incredible. But from from that, well, I don't know if Chris, you want to tell a little bit after that. How 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 good or bad did I do working with you? I think the exposure that you had very quickly in a wide variety of concepts was a good broadening for you, because when you do consulting, that's the situation. It's it's work with different types of concepts that are in different stages. Some brand new startup doing research and creativity. Some been around for a long time, needing operational consistency, needing maybe seasonal freshening or management changing. And so watching you in those different situations quickly adapt and be able to take the reins and lead and help people solve problems, I think is, is what created of the value and probably gave you the confidence to go on and do what you're doing now. Do you know, even I think another huge thing that happened or a turning point for, for me was you know, when, when you're a chef and when you're on one restaurant and, and people call you celebrity and call you prodigy, you kind of tend to, you know, your head can get a little weird and you, you can, you know, lose focus and, and, and forget, you know, who you are, where you, co- where you come from, where you're going to. And, and in consulting, it was such a humbling and precious experience because I realized I could do this for the rest of my life and it was not about me, you know, it wasn't just about me. So it was about using my knowledge my experience that I was always, you know, furthering and, and, and working towards getting better, but I was really going to use all that knowledge to help other people make their dreams a reality. And, and that's it. That, that clicked with me right then. And, and I think I'm going to be doing this for, for a long, long time. So how did that get you to where you are now? Maybe you should explain what your group is, what your role is, what your clients look like. Yes. So Culinary Matters, it's a culinary, a creative culinary agency. So we, we like to help people, everything that's culinary and is creative. That really later takes into a whole bunch of different directions, but starts with, we just like to make sure that people have a menu that's bold, you know, that people cannot forget. And also they have all the right tools to execute it at the highest level. And, and I really think, and we all really believe that and I say we all here in, in the team at Culinary Matters that food is the reason why people go to restaurants. And we just want to make sure that, you know, if it's your first, second or third restaurant, you're always going to get a bold menu. And there is a method for the creation of this menu. It's not just going on Google and, and finding three, four pictures and just copying something. We wanted to make sure that we could provide them a safe environment to create a menu that was bold and, and that was very creative, that was current, that was on trend, not so much something that's trendy, that's going to go away in, you know, three, five years. And what I did is I just started reaching out to all the people that I, 
you know, have either worked with or have fantasized with working with that are extremely creatives, that are the type of people that maybe you wouldn't want to have full time in your restaurant, but instead coming in all at once, you know, when it's time to create, when it's time to develop and, and all get together and help you create that concept. So there's a fabulous mixologist in our team. Her name is Deidre Goodhue. She's a classically trained chef who then transitions to mixology. And so she does fabulous job at creating craft cocktail programs, you know, from bottle to craft to you name it, soft, uh, you know, frozen, etc. We have a sommelier that even though, you know, wine isn't necessarily a creative environment, it's more about studying and understanding and, and knowledge and, and having a sophisticated palate. But crafting a wine list can be something that you can where you can be more creative, right? You don't, we, we no longer make wine lists where it's all white and red burgundy. We're actually going out there and, and exploring the world and making sure that we're making con, uh, concept specific wine lists. Then same thing with the food, right? So we have a pastry chef. He is, uh, his name is Gio. I'm very jealous with him because he's like 21 and <laughs> I'm no longer the kid in the team. He takes, he, he took that place now and he's, incredibly talented with plated desserts. And, and I think that's something that people often forget to, you know, like kind of let desserts as an afterthought. And, you know, that's the last thing that you get. You get it when you're no longer hungry and it's probably the thing that you will remember. So we make sure that, you know, your desserts are memorable and that no one else has anything like it. I have also Chef Carlos, who's our culinary director. And though I used to be a culinary director before, now, you know, with so many things and projects, uh, thankfully, I, we need, I need more chefs. So now it's a group of us. There's a project manager and we just like to, you know, make people feel special, just like we did before at our restaurants or our, you know, hotels or whatever we used to work at. And now we do it here. We take people from, like I said, when they have the idea to when they open and well, while everyone else is asking, you know, checks from them, everyone just wants, you know, them to send them checks. We also like for them to send us checks, but we also take care of them. We bake them bread, we bake them cookies, we rub their backs, you know, we make sure they feel appreciated through the whole process. So Omar, with your clients who are coming to you to help them develop a menu, even improve or fix a menu, what are some of the misconceptions or the wrong directions that you see operators going with their menu? Are there any things that keep reoccurring where you have to say, okay, let's, let's step back and, and, and think about what you're doing and let's, let's get you in a better direction. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. If I could point out at least three things that happen or common mistakes, I'll say one of them is thinking that the menu items should be priced just exclusively based on the cost of the ingredients, which is, uh, you know, I don't want to say it's a mistake, but it's at least it's, it's not enough information to, to determine a price of a menu item. I would say that's, that's one thing they want to consider, not just the price, I mean, the cost of the ingredients, but also, you know, how that compares with the market, obviously doing a little market research and how that item compares with other items within their menu. So that's one thing, right? Um, second thing I would say people, not that much anymore, but some people still like to have a huge menu and just thinking that, oh, you know, let's go there because they have a ton of variety. Well, I don't think people go to places for variety anymore as much as they go for quality. And, you know, restaurants really are about execution. 
it's not only about great ideas. And so I like to, to steer people, especially when you're a newer operator, to go towards hyper-focused concepts and really master one craft. So you want to make burgers? Okay, let's, there's a lot to say and to do around burgers. But let's just make sure that we have a unique product for the bread, a unique product for the, you know, the beef blend. We have a unique product for the cheese, which is really what burger is, right? It's bread, it's, it's meat and cheese. <laughs> and let's see, the last one is maybe not so much about the food or the menu as it is about the order in which things get purchased or developed when it comes to opening a restaurant. So people like to, or a lot of people like to do their menus last. And they like to think about small wares last, whereas we like to see people actually developing those menus before they even select the location, before they, you know, sign a lease, before they start construction. Because oftentimes we see clients that have a really awesome space and they're already building a kitchen that just doesn't make any sense as far as flow goes with their menu. Well, because they don't have a menu. So we like to see people develop their concept, understand what the vision is, put a menu in paper. And then when we go into the design phase, which you guys know, it's probably, you know, one of the first things that you do because it takes so long to get permitting and construction done. We want to make sure that they have a clear vision for menu. So then when we go into design, design is based on that menu and, and really having an efficient execution in that operation. And, you know, you know, Chris, as we're not only creatives, but we're there on site with them, opening, showing them how to, you know, do the things, not just telling them. And, and a poor kitchen design can really, really be bad for, for, an, for an operation. So my recommendation for people out there opening their, their first restaurant is get with, you know, some whoever chef is doing your menu first and then go with a kitchen designer. And I highly recommend going with someone that actually or exclusively does kitchen design rather than someone that does all the architecture piece and they say that, oh, you know, we'll, we'll do the kitchen design because they can lay it out, but they probably wouldn't give you enough operation input on that layout. Wow, that was a long answer, sorry. <laughs> no, it's great. You know, Chris, it reminds me when we talked to John Buchanan from Let Us Entertain You, I mean, he said the same thing. There's a guy who's been doing this for a long time, says, no, the menu drives everything, the concept, the design, you start with the menu, it's all about the food first. and and then hearing Omar say that again, I, I, I think that really underscores the importance of, of starting there. And I'm sure you have some, something to say about that as a guy who's been consulting restaurants for so long, too. Well, there's a lot of good detail that came out that I just think listeners that are starting out or some of you who maybe are looking for maybe a fresh approach to an existing restaurant should take note of. And it's because it's too easy for us to say that we're food-based. It's too easy for us to say that, oh no, the menu is most important. It's the heart of my concept, but not follow the process as Omar just laid it out. So what I heard there, Omar, and maybe you'll amplify a little bit to go into some greater detail, but that the menu is a living and breathing thing and it is a process. So you do need to start with it so that when design and others join the team, they really understand. And even if all of the menu items aren't done, at least the menu is developed conceptually so that design is impacted and other decisions, even people that you hire are all fitting in with the concept of the menu. 
And then, of course, as you go forward, you work out the mechanics of the menu, costing, portioning, presentation. Little things might change as you go. But for those who are listening to this that haven't done that process in a while, because your restaurant's been around for years and years, I think this is something that's very key to make note of. We should, we should start and go through the process. And then when we're done, we, we update and we keep it fresh. And I don't know, am I saying that right? Or what am I forgetting, Omar? No, I, I think you, you nailed it in the head, Chris. And another thing I would, I would add to that is also when, you, when people are budgeting for restaurants, I, I feel like, you know, small wares, utensils, tools that you actually need to prepare the food, which is the main reason why we started this restaurant business in, you know, in the first place, it's left till the end. And so you bought this beautiful $50,000 chandelier and then you're like, do we really need that blender <laughs> for the kitchen? <laughs> so I really encourage people to now say, you know what, we're going to make a restaurant, which means food and service. Okay, so let's start before we select the most expensive building. They had, you know, the most expensive real estate and, and buy the most expensive chandeliers that let's make sure we have enough money to buy the power blenders, you know, the kit, the, you know, the, the mixers, the saute pans, the pots, the sheet trays, a good mixer, good ovens. Because Ultimately, that is the heart of the house. Well said. So, so what are the current trends that, that you're working with that you're seeing? in say use of equipment, setup of stations, cross training of staff. I mean, how are kitchens today being impacted by consumer tastes and menus and how are they responding? Well, I would say the, the, to, to begin with, uh, kitchens aren't all that different than you know many years ago. That's in, in, a, in a way, they're relatively similar. The things that have changed dramatically are one is presentation. You know, before you only had a photo shoot when you had a photo shoot. Now we have photo shoots every single day in every single table. So that's something that really changed, you know, the landscape because now every chef needs to make sure that every cook can execute that presentation every time because you never know when you have a food blogger with 300,000 followers on Instagram sitting at one of your tables, you don't even know, and you're sending an ugly dish that's gonna impact hundreds of thousands of people. So I would say plating training, now it's gotten to the next level. And consistency, it's obviously gotten to the next level because now we're all connected. So I think that's one very important thing. And the other thing is, well, kind of the same thing. Again, not just execution, but now menu items need to be designed, not only from a you know, flavor profile point of view for them to make sense with the concept, but also they need to be Instagrammable, quote unquote, like now food needs to also be beautiful. I'm not saying that it wasn't like that before, but I guess it wasn't so, so important. And then the other thing is we like to see every time, you know, and, I, and we enjoy this a lot, how piece of equipment, now you see one tool that is four tools in one. Let me just give you a little example of one that's a domestic one. The, the listeners can see, but behind me, I have a Thermomix, you know, and they're not obviously paying me or anything, but just to give you an example of something that really changes the way we cook nowadays. So that's a, it's a blender, just like the blender you have at home. But besides blending, it also weighs. So it's a scale. So instead of having to weigh something and then put it in the blender, this one weighs and blends, right? And then another thing that it does is, is it cooks so you can control temperature. So you can put, you know, milk and flour and sugar 
and 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 let it do its thing and it becomes uh pastry cream or you can make a carrot soup but just putting throwing carrots and a little bit of water and some herbs and some butter so now you have piece of equipment that are doing you know two three four jobs at once so it's almost like a sous chef from that point of view i see you know kitchens moving in the right direction now ovens not only roast right now you can control humidity you can control time and you can have cycles so you can tell one oven you know start with dry heat high temperature for the first 10 minutes and give it a nice sear and then give it a little moisture say 30 percent humidity lower temperature and for two hours you're going to do you know at some sort of brace and then lower temperature and just hold it warm we we didn't used to have that <laughs> you know we used to have an oven and then a steamer and then a holding cabinet i hear you i hear you so omar oh. the there's there's so many variations of dining now even as young as you are you must have seen a lot of emergence of, of ethnic cuisines and, and things that were maybe unusual a few years back, which have gone to the mainstream. And, you know, what kind of challenges does that create for you in terms of supporting a concept where somebody says, I want to do something that's very authentic from this part of the world and this, and I also want to be successful and popular? Right. Well, I think it, it's two things. Obviously, one is that superficial knowledge. It's obviously not enough because consumers are way more educated now than they ever were before. So now everyone is a foodie. So you're not going to throw four ingredients together and tell them that's a Thai curry. They would know if it's an Indian curry or if it's Malaysian or if it's Thai because now people have access to the Internet. So I would say first thing is if you're going to do something authentic, you can, you just need to be thorough, you need to be detailed, you need to do your research and study. And you don't necessarily have to be from, from that place. Like I've opened Vietnamese restaurants and I, and, you know, I work with Thai clients and Chinese clients and, and I haven't been to a lot of those places. And you can still get really, really close to authentic flavors if you do your due diligence. Now, on the other hand, I think it's, it should be also about listening to your to your consumer, to the market. That's not my specialty in the sense that I don't know necessarily how to conduct market research. There's people and experts that do that. But I think it's smart to try to figure out what people are looking for in your area. And not to say that you want to stay always in the center of that, but maybe don't go super far and try to educate, you know, the whole market in something because I think it's easier to, to be the best necessary, than necessarily being the first. I don't know if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally get that. And, and with the pandemic, I mean, you know, we're slowly coming out of this, but you've been working through this whole environment. And it sounds like a lot of the clients you have are, uh, I guess I would consider more upscale, unique, but, you know, we takeout delivery has been on is, is certainly on the radar how is this influencing or informing how you're going forward or does it have any impact at all in your consulting oh well, yeah i mean i think in a way it's helped us make our clients understand 
better how important it is to manage your business by the numbers. You know, because a lot of people were just so happy with top line revenue that they didn't care, you know, <laughs> you know, inventory to understand their costing, to train their managers in how to read a PL and those kinds of things. And now we know that, you know, it's a business that has small margins and, and we need everyone to be fine tuned. So then we can really make it through something like this. I mean, I'm not saying that every single restaurant that closed had underlying conditions, but a lot of them did, you know, a lot of them were not operating at, at, you know, at that level, not, not necessarily that they were bad. They just didn't have a hand on their finances. So that's one thing that I feel as though it's probably going to be always like that. Like we're going to be way more on top of our numbers. Number one. Number two is now we know that, and just like I was telling you earlier, it's, it, we're in a new era of content marketing. So your online presence was important. Now it's fundamental. So before, just like I've heard Chris saying this before, there was a time when some restaurants had a AC and some didn't, right? And it was like an optional, a nice feature to have. Now you either have air conditioning or you don't exist, right? So online presence kind of is the same. It used to be like, oh, it's nice. They have an Instagram and a Facebook page, blah, blah, blah. Now, if you don't have one, you pretty much don't exist. And that also ties into the third point, which is, obviously the delivery and the takeout component, which some and a lot of restaurant owners and clients didn't even consider that, a, you know, a percentage of their sales. They didn't care too much for it. They didn't want to make it that simple for the customers to buy from them. And now every single menu we design needs to travel well. We identify the items that don't travel well right away. We need to have the right packaging for everything. And that's something that we need to think about with more time in advance, you know, we want to make sure that it looks cohesive. It looks on brand because some people won't even come to your restaurant anymore. They're going to order takeout. So now the delivery is not, it's not a last minute thought. It's definitely in, it's, it's one, you know, in the top, in the top of your checklist It's making sure that your food not only can be good on site, but can travel well. And obviously that opens a whole can of worms right now, which is supply to go where it's really hard right now because everyone needs so much of it. But I just think it's good. It's good for our development because now we're on top of these things. So do some of your clients have success with doing a separate or maybe more limited menu for their curbside pickup and third-party delivery customers? Or are you working with your clients on always doing the entire menu that's available dine-in to be available curbside? No, that's a, that's a really good question, Chris. I'm glad you asked. But it, basically, you select the ones that don't and, and you, you don't put them in the, in the menus anymore. Because And since it's not a last-minute thought, if you put something in there that doesn't travel well, then that's going to get a bad post and a, get a bad review. So you want to not only design the menu, being mindful of maybe 70% of it being items that travel well, but also identify those that don't and, and, and just don't offer them. The other thing is before you could have, you know, 30% of your menu photographed because you just needed it for marketing purposes. But now people are ordering in, in third-party ordering apps or directly in, you know, in your online ordering system. So all they have is a picture to select and, you know, pick and choose what they want to eat. So now photography is kind of like AC. It's not a, maybe you have it, maybe you don't. Now you have to have a picture of every single menu item. And that's a product of our consulting. Also, we 
part of our deliverables is here's your menu of course here's your recipes and and we're going to help you implement it but here's all the professional photos for absolutely every menu item food and beverage so you can sell it online has the role of technology increased dramatically and impacting kitchen operations and maybe you could explain how how you work with clients and what you feel they need to be doing in order to manage product cost, inventory, ordering, and how technology maybe helps make that easier. Yeah, of course. I think one of the biggest improvements of the last, I don't know, five years, it's AP automation or the invoice capture automation. You know, because we see, still we see too many people or too many clients that, you know, receive their order, receive their invoices from, you know, their food vendors, and then they put in a drawer and then someone from accounting or an accountant comes and picks them up and pays the total of the invoice and then leaves you with very little information, you know, to take informed decisions about your business. So with automated, like if you were really smart before about managing, you know, your restaurant, you would grab those invoices and input them in a spreadsheet line by line to really know how much of everything you purchased, how much have you been paying, what's your usage, price fluctuations, and, and, and those sorts of things. But most people didn't do that. Most people were just paying the total of the invoice. They knew how much they were spending overall, but they didn't know specific usage and, and things like this unless they had someone doing all the data entry line by line, item by item. So with some of this software, like, again, it's not like they're paying me, but I think they do a fabulous job. And the guys from Extra Chef, they have a really cool platform. And I know we're going to see a lot more of those in, in the market in the next few years. What they do is you take a picture of your, of your invoice and, you know, within 24 hours, that invoice is basically converted into a spreadsheet. And I think that's a tremendous advance for, for, for especially for the independent operators that cannot afford to have someone working full-time on that. But let me elaborate in a second what you said about what do I recommend people when it comes to managing product? Well, first of all, understanding that the two biggest expenses in the restaurant are food and labor, right? And that we cannot just give all the responsibility to one person who also has all the responsibility of making incredible food in a consistent basis without giving them the right tools. So we need to make sure that we are providing chefs with the training in case they don't have it, give them the right tools, coach them, and then hold them accountable. And, and for product, you just need to make sure that you know what your food cost is. I don't think in the past, I feel like chefs have had a love-hate relationship with accountants because they were the ones telling us what happened last month, which is a really sad place to be in. What you want is to know what's happening in your business on a daily basis. And, and chefs should be able to do that. If you control your purchases, right? If you're inputting your invoices somewhere through automation, like I was telling you, artificial intelligence through something like Extra Chef or someone just doing it by hand. So if you have a hand on your purchases, Obviously, you know how much you're selling because you have a point of sale and you're doing uh, counts to know your inventory. You can tell anyone what your food cost is that day. And then that makes you feel better about your accountant because at that point, your accountant is not going to be telling you or giving you information. It's going to be giving you confirmation. 
And I think that's the way it should be. So if you're a restaurant owner and you cannot tell me what your food cost is based on usage in today's reality, in your latest invoices, in your current inventory, I think you have a great opportunity to improve right there. And then labor is no different. And I mean, I don't need to necessarily talk to you too much about labor, but it's another tremendous expense, just like food is actually a bigger one often. And, and it's the same thing. We, so a lot of people think of it as a, you know, last minute thought, just schedule a bunch of people to make sure the work, the job gets done. But really it's not, it's not as simple as that. It's not, it's a science and it's art at the same time. And if you don't have a good procedure to forecasting sales to you know projecting schedules and then going back the day after and checking how you did you know i think that's another great area of opportunity if you want to make sure you know your restaurant stays healthy for many many years and certainly labor because of of course we're always reading it and seeing it there is a labor shortage. A lot of operators are having a hard time getting everybody they need. And in some areas, labor is going to get more expensive because there's pressure on increasing minimum wages. So I've got to believe right now when you are designing the menu, you have to be thinking, well, you know, what, how labor intensive are these items as well as how much it's going to cost to provide the inventory necessary to execute them. It, it totally, it, it's all kind of connected. I, I totally agree with you, Barry. It, that's why, you know, hyper-focus is good, in my opinion. That's why less is more, in my opinion. You know, that's why I think you want to master something and, and cross-train everyone in your kitchen rather than having, you know, a hundred menu items and only Carlos can make the bread and only, you know, Jason can make the pork belly. I think everyone now understands that you're pretty much splitting the same dollar. Like you're not gonna sell more for having 30 more salads in your menu. Uh, you would have sold the same with three. <laughs> That's a tough, tough lesson. Sometimes takes restaurants a long time to learn, but that is a key point that variety isn't necessarily designed, I mean, defined anymore by how many but it's more defined by the uniqueness of what it is you're doing with the item. So that's, that's well put. And I, and I like the point that you talk about working with people for cross-training, because if you try to excel at fewer things, and if everyone in the kitchen is cross-trained, they're more valuable. They typically produce better and stay longer. That takes us into I think, our next step, which is working with labor, not just finding, but how has it changed now to work? The way you train, for example, are the tools the same? How often do you need to teach, train, to work with today's staff? Well, I like to have two different approaches to training. And whether even if it's front or back of the house, I like to have a onboarding plan. And it's real simple. It's just, as, you know, it can be as simple as a checklist or a little schedule or as complicated or, or intricate or, you know, detailed as an e-learning platform where people have, you know, the ability to get some of this training through video, but it's just making sure that someone's actually being taught every single thing that they have to. And, and if you can put it in a schedule, even better, you know, because, you know, the, the anxiety that can come from, you know, 
being your first day in a kitchen. Heck, I'm a chef, and if you throw me in a kitchen the first day, I'm gonna have anxiety because I don't know what anything is. I don't know anyone's names. I don't know the recipes. So basically, you're pretty useless <laughs> for the first couple of days. So nothing better than having some clarity and having a path for okay, day one, you're gonna learn how we how we receive food, not how food's received in the world. It's how we receive food, right? How we clean. You know, what are the different areas of the kitchen? What everyone else, what everyone does, you know, how we label food in this restaurant. So just having a path, a clear path, and maybe take seven days to two weeks to onboard someone. But I think onboarding is fundamental. And then the next thing that I think is very important is, is keeping people excited about learning. Like if you're not moving forward, you're moving backwards, right? And so I like to have also a plan for 52 weeks, which is, you know, a year. So what can we teach our staff every single week? You know, can we speak, you know, in our pre-shift to our team about how to properly cut fish? This week, we're gonna talk about how to cut flat fishes, just because, you know, there's an opportunity to learn. And when people learn from you, they admire you more, they respect you more, and you, you can never work as hard as when you actually admire and respect your leaders. So I think, Onboarding is fundamental just to make sure that people know where they belong, where they're supposed to be, what they're supposed to be doing and reduce the anxiety and, and empower them to make decisions, but also ongoing training just to keep people excited and keep them moving forward. And, and I think, especially with us millennials, <laughs> you need to feel like, you know, that sense of you're part of something bigger than you and, and you're moving in the right direction and, and, these things are really important because otherwise, you know, it's just hard work and and it's easy to get burned out. Well, that's interesting, Omar, because you hit on something that I'm not sure people talk about so much. Right now, the conversation with laborers is, well, you know, need to give your, your staff another dollar an hour. You need to give them more this and that. And if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying the culture of the operation particularly with your younger staff, is one of the reasons they're going to be happy and stay. Totally. The extra dollar, the extra 50 cents is just going to make it through that week, you know, and they're going to come back in two more weeks and ask you for another dollar. I mean, I'm not saying not pay, your, you know, don't pay your staff fairly. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is people don't work for you because of the money. The compensation, it's only like the little whipped cream on the pie. People work for you because they admire you, because they respect you, because you're their leader, and because, you know, because they know that you would do the same things for them. You know, you got their back, they got your back, and training, it's a big component of that. If they know, this guy is teaching me something, you know, I actually should pay him instead of him paying me. <laughs> and, and I think that, that goes a long way uh, better than just giving everyone an extra dollar every month, because, you know, you're going to run out of dollars. <laughs> And I guess your competitors will just lure them away with another dollar. And you don't want that turnover, do you? Oh, no, turnover is incredibly painful for a kitchen. And so you, you want to make sure that, you know, you can prevent that. And I think that's one of the best ways. The other one is obviously just, just being good, man, just treating people with respect, just having empathy, you, you know, listening. Some people just talk and talk and talk. And, and, and you know, we spend too many hours in a kitchen. And I, I mean that it, like it's a good thing. You know, I grew up in a kitchen and it's rough and there's heat and there's, you know, 
sharp knives and all this. And it's nothing like, you know, making the other person feel special. I think it goes a long way, way longer than 50 cents an hour. These are excellent points. I hope people are making a note of. The one that I just want to highlight in addition to this is that not only did you hit hard on an organized onboarding and initial training, but you hit pretty hard on the fact that if you're going to be successful, you're going to engage others. And that means there's always going to be ongoing training. The pre-shifts are important. You mentioned the weekly training. If people feel like they're always going to be learning more, that means they're going to be more valuable. They'll stay because they feel like they're appreciated. They're getting smarter. Those are excellent points as we go forward and try to work our way out of, which is right now a very difficult labor shortage, and and try to get into a higher level of of, of you know of of workability with our staff. So Omar, um, as we tie, wrap this up, you know. Where do, you, where do you think this is all going in terms of the future of restaurant business? You know, everybody everybody's predicting what's going to happen, but you're really down there in the trenches. You're seeing where things are going. Can you give us some predictions about what we can expect in terms of trends, in terms of styles of service, in terms of the way we market, anything that, that might illuminate this business for us as we move ahead? I mean, I, I think we touch in, in, in a lot of those things uh, of where we're going. Uh, so some of this, I'm just going to, you know, reiterate, reiterate, like being good at one thing is going to be, you know, very, very important. You know, being hyper-focused, I think, is the way to go, especially if you're starting. I mean, we see Michelin star chefs, you know, that are closing some of the restaurants and opening hyper-focused sandwich shops and pizza places and, 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 and so on. So I'm not saying that every single restaurant needs to be a burger joint. I'm saying that let's let's focus in quality rather than quantity because restaurants are all about execution. I, I definitely want to say that. The other thing is in the future and, and I don't think too too far from now, obviously we need to make concepts that are less labor intensive, not only because of the cost of labor, but also because real estate, it's getting super expensive. And, and that's obviously not a cost that you can negotiate too much in a restaurant. So creating menus that can be executed in a small kitchen, it makes a lot of sense. And I think also in the future, we want to make sure that kitchens, everything is integrated you know, integrated, connected. There's different ways to put it, but just making sure that you have the proper systems. I think before was an option and it's soon gonna be a must. Systems, sometimes we don't know they exist, but I, I think it's something very important to, to consider. As far as food trends, I mean, I can't really, you know, read the future too much. <laughs> I don't know necessarily if the next big, what's the next chia pudding or what's the next avocado toast? I feel like I'm more in a listening pattern than I'm in a prediction pattern. I like to know what the people are, what the consumer wants, and 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 then go from there. And make sure that I'm doing something better than than you know than what everyone else is doing. I think maybe that's. I think the future is operating better, obviously slimmer, and and being more uh, streamlined, being smarter, and understanding your business from the numbers. 
besides that, I think being vigilant, you know, of what's out there. Don't don't be just because it was good and it worked five years ago. It's fine. I think you have to stay relevant. Take a hard look at what you're doing and, and make sure that you're set up for the next 10 years. And ultimately, like I said, I don't think it's too much about being looking into the future as much as it is just being better, better, executing better. And 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 that's it. And trying to have fun and, and be a good person. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And uh, that I hope everybody heard that and listened to it because what advice? Hey, hey, Chris, anything you want to do to bring us home here that with our friend Omar? What, what a what a great interview, huh? Yeah, there were great principles to live by. I am always amazed and tremendously proud of, you know, the work you've done and what you've accomplished so far. But more than that, I'm so excited about seeing what you're going to be like as you progress, as you succeed with more clients and as you do more things. So you've laid out some excellent principles for everyone to operate by. I think Barry and I could listen to you talk about food, trends, quality, and the importance of doing things right for a much longer time. But unfortunately, I think we really do need to wrap up. I think you would rather just eat my food, right, than listen to me. <laughs> both, both are a pleasure, Omar, absolutely. One last thing that I would just say that, and, sure. and I don't think it's just something for the future, it's something that we've seen it happening lately and we're gonna see it more and more, is that food is supposed to be good for you, not only feel good when you're eating it, but also later and be good for you, period. So, it, and it comes from someone who loves baking, loves ice cream, loves all these things, but I think we're gonna see more and more health conscious, wholesome, plant-centric, food that's that's for sure i mean there, there's no way we're not going to see more food that makes you know that that makes us healthier humans rather than makes us die sooner <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i i believe you're right we're seeing it plant-based <laughs> yeah. um, absolutely hey well thank you so much for having me this has been such a treat i am so pumped seriously well, well we thank you thank you omar thank you very much and thanks to the listeners we appreciate you taking time i hope that some of the pearls of wisdom from omar resonate and hit target catch up with us soon for another episode of the corner booth thank you for joining us on the corner booth we'll be back next tuesday with more inspiration insights and industry best practices to help you engage your team delight your guests and grow your business Thank you.